0: You're listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I speak to Adam LeClave. Adam fronted the band EarthSuit in 2000, and EarthSuit was this incredibly unique rock band that was definitely ahead of its time. They were on Sparrow Records. They were unlike anything that I had ever heard in the Christian music circles growing up. And Adam's story really holds true to the theme of this volume, Volume 4, Truth, Soul, Rock and Roll, because he talks about how it took him a while to really live his truth. And he was wrestling with that, uh, with his soul, speaking about his spirituality, and how his journey took him from one specific point of view to another, and the rock and roll of it all. What did he do beyond Earth suit? What happened before? Let, then we get into Macro Sick, Club of the Suns, what his current project is. There's a lot of great information in this podcast, and we dig into a lot of heavy topics. I want you to get ready because this is a good one. I'll be right back with my conversation with Adam after this. <laughs>
1: We make the sound, you know the light we got shine. People love the rock, come and rock one time. Anyone that says, then he has a wine People love the rock, come and rock one time. Make me feel so fine, pull up all the
0: time. People love the rock, can the fuck come and the fun of and can out. One time, one time, one time, one time. You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I am here with Adam LeClave And I have been looking forward to this interview for a long time. And I know that I, I may use hyperbole on other episodes for sure. But one of the things that I'm excited about, specifically talking with you today, Adam, well, first of all, I should ask you, how are you doing?
1: Man, I'm doing, I'm doing as good as can be right now in 2020. <laughs> right. this, is a, <laughs> this, is a, this is a unique time, uh, but right. I'm, I'm doing very well considering, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was just steamrolling through some of this stuff, but I and I apologize for that, but I think it's it's from my thought process of and we were chatting a little bit about this offline was, you know, in a similar fashion to Nate Cole who was on the last volume Dirty Pop. I come from a similar background as you with regards to a very religious upbringing and very stringent rules on what one can and cannot do with their life and their um, who they choose to love and how their life is. or and, and I think there's a lot there and there's a lot of good things that can come out of um, lessons that were learned and experiences that were had. But then there's a lot of um, less good things, I'll say, um, that do a number on us. And so I think throughout this volume, really trying to explore um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, really all of it in this genre that one calls, quote unquote, Christian music. But before we even dive into all of that, because there's a lot there, and I'm excited about the, where the podcast is going to go, because I'm not even sure with some of it. I know it's going to go somewhere good. But I do like to kick off the podcast by asking folks a specific question. So, Adam, I'll ask you, what does music mean to you?
1: Whoa, yeah. Just start with like the meaning of life question. <laughs> yes, um, then we'll
0: peel it back.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to me... That's a a really unique question, actually, because um, I find that everybody has such a different relationship with music, and when you are a musical person, when you have the gene, um, you tend to hang with... Or over life, you you tend to meet other people that have that gene and have have that ear, and you um, realize that they have an interaction with music in in the exact same way that you do but then i'm always surprised sometimes to meet other people that have a very different relationship with music that's more functional and it's like you know for them music is um more about listening to something to fit a mood and you see that a lot in um like The streaming platforms, you know, uh, music being put into playlists to fit a mood almost like it's meant to be just this functional, you know, background piece, um, to fit the other more important things that are going on in your life. But for me, music, um, music was the first thing to make me feel any real feelings. Um, Mm -hmm uh the closest thing i can um make as an analogy i guess is you know when you're a 12 year old 11 year old whatever maybe now it's starting earlier for for kids but when you start going through puberty and you get hormones and you start having these like feelings and these rush of of emotions and feelings that you never had before that's like a tangible thing and for me um, I experienced that as early as I want to say like age six or, or probably around five or six. Yeah. Um, with music. Um, I just remember listening to, to certain things that made like the hairs on my arm stand up and made me, um, made me cry, you know, even at that young of an age. Um, and, um, so for me, music is something that still to this day is just, Uh, super emotional and uh, something that um, is really mystical and magical and, and that um, has a power to it. It's not, for me, it's not a functional thing every now and then I I go there, you know, if I'm like cooking or, you know, I'm doing something, I'm going to find music to just fit that, that mood and that I may not be listening for every little, you know, cool fill that the drummer did or every cool chord change. But, um, for the most part, when something's on, um, you know, it, it has to be, uh, it's gotta be good music for me. Um, I can't, I don't understand the idea of like background music. Um, you know, I, I, I need to be able to like listen to it and feel something, you know, special. And trust me, there's a ton of music out there that, um, that I'll skip right past because it doesn't fit that (laughs) for me. But, um, there's way more, you know, music out there that's just so amazing and such a gift and so beautiful and magical. And um, I don't know if I really even answered that question, but um, no, you
0: you definitely did. And I can I just want to get in here and, and I 100 percent relate to the. I I almost am in like how I defined it not too long ago, but it was, um, it's essentially completely immersing yourself in the music. It's almost treating it like it's, um, like it's a main course of a meal that you're eating. You know, it's not, it's not just, um, a snack that you're, you're grazing on the way in between different things. I mean, it can be that. And it is for People and it gets them from A to B, and that's totally fine. But I, I find myself, and it it sounds a similar way to what you're saying, that when I'm putting on music, I'm intentional about the ability. I'm intentional about my choice to put it on. I'm intentional about the choice of what I'm putting on, and I am intentionally choosing to engage with it actively. Whether that's by sitting back on the couch and just letting it rush over me or whether it's kind of walking around doing my creative process while letting it flow. There's a lot of different ways, but I do think, I think in a similar way, you can have a, it feels, oh, I forget the best way to say it, but it feels like you've been um, working out almost, but but from an emotional and mental standpoint, it's exhausting at, at times when you get kind of get done if you're actively engaging with it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's for sure. It's its own dimension for me. Um, you know, it, it, it can bring me to really high points and it can bring me to really low points too, to be honest, right. um, where, you know, I'll hear some, I'll listen to some people that, um, that I have that, oh, this person's like inside my, my head. There's like a parallel universe. Um, out there where someone's been thinking all the same thoughts that I've been thinking and they're doing this, uh, but they're doing it so much better that, you know what now I, I don't want to have anything to do. I don't want to have anything to do with music. Um, so it can even like, it can, it can even uh, affect me that way sometimes. And I have to be like careful cause I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that, that deals with a lot of like anxiety and, you know, kind of creative anxiety. And sometimes, um, you know, it can even have that effect on me and make me really unproductive sometimes, you know, with, with working on uh, music. But anyway, totally different uh, subject. Maybe we'll get into that later, but just all that to say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really powerful thing to me. Like I, I can approach it in the same way that a lot of people do where it's like, you know, light and, you know, you know, playlist for a mood kind of thing, but that's, that's me just kind of blending in, I guess with everyone else um, f- for the most part when music's on, I, c- I can't sleep to music. I can't, oh,
0: yeah. I can't,
1: I can't work to music. Um, I, yep. I can maybe like a podcast or the news or something, but when music's on, like it, it's like take, it's kind of taking over. It's commanding um, your attention. almost. E- exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's that for me, I know it's different, you know, for so many people, but
0: yeah, No, but that's, that's, I'm right there too. It's, it's something about the, the way in which it, I I don't know. I find, and I know that I've quoted this in the podcast and listeners must be tired of me saying it. And one of these days I'll get the exact scientific, um, source for this, but I heard that throughout an any given day, there's an average percentage of your brain that you use, but then when you're listening to music. And actively engaging within that way, it's activating a higher percentage overall of your brain, and so it fires off these creative uh, aspects of your brain. and And I think that's where the exhaustion comes from: is that you're you're working out from a mental capacity. But then, in addition, I think that's how it can you know one can be unable to work with music on or sleep with music on in in the ways in which you talked about because it's not it's the same thing as like. I wouldn't drink a cup of coffee like the moment right before I'm trying to go to bed. Like that's ridiculous. And I, and I, f- or like, it's hard for me. Like I enjoy drinking coffee if I'm sitting outside and, and having a good conversation or engaging with nature. I rarely am sitting down at the desk to like do some complex work, um, with a full cup of coffee in my system. And I think of music in a, in a similar way.
1: Yes. Yeah. For
0: sure. <laughs> well now I want to, I want to kind of, let's start at the beginning of, um, you know, in the beginning there was Adam and, um, (laughs) just so we're told in,
1: in the actual very beginning. Yes.
0: Right. So, um, but, uh, but let's, let's peel back the layers of what some of your early life looked like growing up. We knowing that growing up in a religious household, but I'd really love to know from you, when were some of those first moments where you were interacting with music? What did that look like for you?
1: Yeah, my my um my story with music is really random um because um no one in my 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 grandmother was the only person in our entire family that was musical at all. Uh, my mom and dad, you know, were in like the church choir and things like that, but sure. you know, I don't think they're going to listen to this podcast or hear it maybe, um uh, but both of them are not necessarily, you know, musical, uh, if I can just, I'll just put it that way. Um, and they, would they would probably tell you that too. Uh, but my grandmother would, you know, she played the piano and she, you know, she sang and was an artist. And I just, I formed like a really, um, tight bond with her. I remember even just like as a toddler, um, and, So I I was born in California, lived there for just four years. So I I can't really claim California as a part of me necessarily. But we moved to Memphis, Tennessee, um, when I was four or five years old, my dad's job. And at some point around the age of five or six, um, I had come home from church and we had a piano in the house that no one played. I didn't play No one played it. Um, but I had come home from church, and um, someone had just visited and played the song "Chariots of Fire," which was from a like an '80s oh, yes, movie, yes, a very yes. epic. And you
0: plunked it, plinked it out, right?
1: And so then I started like playing it, plinking it out. You know, like you said by by ear. I was just kind of playing the melody and yeah. So that kind of set things off because my mom heard me doing this. um, And like I said, no one played this piano. It just kind of sat there like a piece of furniture. And then she decided to tell my grandmother who she knew was a musician and musical and sang and played piano. And when she heard that, then she immediately put me in piano lessons at like six years old. And uh, she lived in California at the time And from that point on, like every month, she would send me, she would make um, these scrapbooks of like cutouts from the paper about musicians. Or um, she would take uh, like articles that she would find about orchestra instruments or different, you know, uh, pieces within the orchestra. And she would just make these elaborate like scrapbooks basically and send them to me with cassette tapes I'm aging myself but with cassette tapes I'm right there of, with of classical music <laughs> and so that was kind of my first thing that I was really exposed to that I formed a little bond with was classical um, and not that I ever went down that road but that was her dream for me was that I would go I would you know keep doing these piano lessons and eventually go to Juilliard which you know right. if, if the listeners are not uh, familiar is one of the most preeminent, you know, music schools in America, in New York, um, and I for sure went a very different path uh, than, than that, but um, I just remember growing up, you know, I, I I stuck with piano for a few years. I really, I, I had a knack for it. I liked it, and I remember, you know, having to practice a lot, and my brothers, I have three brothers, two older, one younger, and I remember it just drove them crazy that I would just constantly playing piano and practicing the same things over and over and i remember hearing them yell to my mom to have me stop playing and eventually over time i don't i'm not blaming them for it i don't i don't know what happened but but eventually i got to the point about 5 or 6 years in i want to say uh to piano lessons that i decided that i wanted to stop Um, And it's a decision that I'll always regret, you know, whilst, you know, my mom or my grandmother at that point was still like paying for these piano lessons. Um, But I just decided I wanted to stop. It was like getting to the point that um, it was going further than I wanted to go with that. And also during that time, somewhere within that time, I was, you know, preteen at this point and I'd started, you know, doing like musicals at church and, different things where I had the opportunity to be a part of something vocal, you know, where I was able to sing. And I remember getting the lead part for some little children's musical called the music man. And, um, Stevie, I think was the name of the role. And, uh, and so I did that. And I remember how good it felt to be doing this role and have people, tell me that it was something they thought I was good at. And yeah. um, so that kind of spurred me on to want to continue doing it. Um, so all throughout school, I kind of, like I said, I kind of stopped piano and then I focused on just singing at that point and would still, you know, I would definitely still play and had a con- I've always had a connection with the piano and uh, would still play it. But even to this day, my relationship with piano is really something that I use to just write music with. I don't consider myself a player by any means. You know, I have a very limited uh, knowledge of um, theory, um, but I can hear, I can, you know, hear things very well. And so in any project that I've been a part of, I've always sought, after somebody that was an actual like key player, um, you know, to kind of work side by side with, you know, um, uh, but anyway, I, you know, throughout high school just continued to do stuff in church and in school that surrounded singing, you know, whether it was all state choirs or church choirs, whatever, just whatever I could do to, to sing and be on stage singing. And I just, right. I continue to pursue that, um, during that time, and I don't know if this is a rabbit trail that we want to go off on yet, but I would say when I was about um, 9 or 10 years old was when I feel like I tripped over some music that um, made me feel the most emotion that I had ever felt before. Um, and there were a couple of artists that were a part of that. One was yeah. uh, one was the Beach Boys, um, and that was actually the first like big non-church concert that I went to. My dad took me to it <laughs> in Memphis. That's awesome. But I remember listening to all their harmonies and listening to the old music, um, and just really feeling something for that and the vocal uh, like excellence, you know, that they had they had put together. And then Stevie Wonder. And when I heard Stevie Wonder, that was one of those moments, like I mentioned earlier, where where I couldn't at that point, you know, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. I couldn't say, oh, this person's been inside my head. They're thinking what I'm thinking. It wasn't that. It was more like I had this connection to what he was doing that was just so emotional. And I had no, no, I had no. Purpose as a 10 or 11 year old, 10 or 11 year old, um, you know, or no ability to really feel or understand what he was talking about or singing, but there was something in the way that he used his voice, and the way that he used his melodies against his chord structure, and the way that he structured the instrumentation. There's something about all of that that was just so emotional to me and so exciting and so amazing. And um, then from there, you know, growing up in the church in Memphis, which was very Southern and a very uh, black dominant city, Memphis, um, you know, I had the opportunity in school and in church to um, have some exposure to, you know, the African-American church, black church in, in Memphis. And uh, I'm guessing that was probably the root of this, but I started listening to black gospel um, at just a really young age. And I remember all my friends um, at that point, you know, when I'm like 12, maybe 13 at this point were skaters and they were listening to like, you know, very early, very raw. The Red Hot Chili Peppers used to be very like, garage punk like very right. you know art punk kind of thing um dead milk men you know the smithereens you know like very oh, sure. punk stuff my friends were into and i somehow was listening to black gospel and it was kind of like the same thing for me where you know yeah. you're at that age and you're starting to feel like just a little bit of like angst and a little bit of like emotion and you know the hormones are kicking in. Like there was something like really just guttural um, and just painful and like hyper exciting when I would listen to black gospel and just the way the musicians would play and the way that the singers would just you know scream and it was guttural and um, there was something about that that I just I was just building upon the music that I had uh, found before that I guess, but. When I found that, that became the door for everything that has like come after for me. And I started listening to every mass choir I could find, every, you know, every R&B, you know, everything I could listen to without getting in trouble. Because I grew up in a house where I I wasn't allowed to listen to anything secular, you know, um, but. I would just start really just immersing myself in in uh, black gospel, and um, I had no idea, you know, what I was going to do with music—not one clue whatsoever. But I, um, in high school, you know, just kept on that path, like I said, of you know, singing in church, singing competitions, and different things I could do, and ended up getting a scholarship to go to a very Conservative um, Christian, like Bible school um, that shall not be named in Springfield, Missouri.
0: And, I was about, <laughs> I
1: was about uh, to guess. Oh, never mind. <laughs> so I, I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Ah, uh, yes. But it was basically.
0: Now, if I recall correctly, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I believe. Uh, So I was Baptist, Southern Baptist was my denomination of choice or not of choice. I was um, told, Um, but um, if I, if I recall correctly, assembly of God believed that you can walk away from the faith. Is that correct? Oh, no. Am I remembering?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Um, Yeah. They definitely did not believe that. Yeah. If you, if you stepped away from a minute, you were on your way to hell.
0: That's what I mean. That's what I mean. I didn't quite say it right, but that's what I mean. It's like one slip up and you're done, kind of a thing. Yes. Um, yeah. Whereas Baptist, it's like, well, once you once you get dunked, you're not sunk, you know, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're good. If that's um, not a,
1: if that's not already
0: a bumper sticker for the Baptist, uh, <laughs> it should be sacked. It should be yes. If you're not bumped, if you're if you're dunked, you're not sunk. There we go. But. But, um, but yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the denomination that you grew up in. Um, and I, real quick, as we're nearing the end of this segment, I want to know, um, walk me through the timeline when you're listening to this. So is this early nineties at this point, early to mid nineties?
1: Yes, this is, um, this is, yeah, like coming out of the very late eighties into the early nineties. So, okay, cool. You know, for people that want to do a little deep dive into some of the stuff that I was listening to, commissioned this guy Daryl Coley, um, James Moore. Um, you know, there was just there were so many great, great uh, people, Rance Allen, um, that that I just really just immersed myself into. That still to this day. I I still, even though, you know, and maybe we'll get into this in another segment of the podcast, but, you know, even though I am not uh, even 1% a part of that faith anymore, I still listen to this stuff daily because I have an emotional connection to it.
0: I love that. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this.
1: Cut up in oblivion So we come with that song Come with that sword Come with the image of the sun Come with that song Come with that sword
0: Welcome back to the after the encore i'm your host joe shaw and i'm out here living in osmosis land with adam LaClave. uh adam how are you t- I, I had to throw a pun in um but i'm only gonna do it one time just just one time and then that's all right all right all right really done really done um no no, no but but now i want to i want to kind of dig into um you know we talked about some of your early music stylings your exposure to music your influences definitely um, but I wanted to start to peel back the layers of how you got from your influences listening to gospel music um, in and also being in shows like The Music Man and Junior High High School. And how do you get from there to Earth Suit, signed by Sparrow Records? drop in the album in 2000 like there's a lot i'm assuming that happened in between 1a and and b so walk us through what that timeline looked like from your perspective
1: man there is a lot that is uh, that is the best way to put that um <laughs> but i will try to give you a concise um overview um so When I, I think I mentioned in the first segment that, you know, I had this scholarship opportunity to go to this, you know, Bible school and I had literally zero idea of why I was going to go there and what I even wanted to do with music. To me, it was just an opportunity to go to school for free. Um, But (laughs) my dad was living in New Orleans at the time. My dad and mom separated when I was like six years old. And he was living in New Orleans at the time. And he kept telling me that I should come down and visit and that he found this amazing church and, you know, the people were great. And so the year that I graduated high school, the summer, I decided, okay, I'm going to just go like kind of spend the summer with him before I go into school. And so I went down and visited New Orleans, stayed with him and from Literally from the first couple of days that I was there, I knew that I, I knew that I had to stay. I knew there was something pulling me. The city was like no other place that I had ever seen or experienced or heard about, um, and the people there were um, so incredible and they have this crazy accent that sounds like a weird tweak on like the Boston accent, (laughs) but it's also really Southern. It's, it's the hardest accent to try and explain. Um, (laughs) but there was something so intriguing about the culture there and the music, the music was so dense and so good, um, that I knew there was some reason that I needed to spend some time there. And I didn't know like how long that was, but, this was the first big move I've ever made in my life. The first, you know, move at all. I guess you know, I was just coming out of high school, but um, this was a huge decision because I basically said no to this scholarship. And, you know, by the way, I'm I'm moving to New Orleans, and I have no idea why. Um, right. You know, saying that to my family, uh, my dad was a little excited because he lived down there, um, but. You know, the rest of my family was not as excited about the idea. But I moved to New Orleans, kind of started going to this church with my dad. Um, not long story short, but let me just speed up a little bit here. A year and a half later, after being there, spending time, getting a job, finding my own apartment, a year and a half later, I meet this guy named Paul Meany. And mm-hmm. he and I um, were... Kind of in a really similar situation, he had just dropped out of school and realized that it was not for him, and that he needed to figure something else out. Also, incredible at music, had grown up with a little bit of a similar background to me. Went, he actually went to music school um, in New Orleans and was like a ridiculous like piano player and was a great singer. And um, so he and I just kind of hit it off pretty quickly. And I started singing with this little like jazz band that he was doing and putting together. And the church had opened up the church that we both went to had opened up this club on Bourbon Street in downtown New Orleans (laughs) and asked us to be like the house band basically. And so that's awesome. For like seven nights a week, we would go down And, you know, we'd have to break down every night and then reset up every night. And we would literally just set up sometimes for, like, two homeless people, um, you know, that would come (laughs) in and maybe a friend, you know. And then on the weekends, maybe it would be 20 people and, um, you know, (laughs) mostly all drinking and having a great time. Uh, But there we are, like, you know, trying to... Uh, proselytize and sing about Jesus on right on Bourbon Street. And, but Paul and I looked at it as an opportunity to just hash some things out musically and have fun. And, like, you know, it was definitely outside of the structure of a church setting. And, um, like he and I in that setting started the very beginnings of writing some songs together. And I, I guess I should have mentioned maybe for any of your listeners that, that aren't familiar, but Paul uh, was the lead singer of the band mute math. Right. And uh, he and I started the band earth suit together. Yes. And so he and I started out as roommates and, you know, had lots of crazy stories with that, that we would need a whole other episode to talk about. And, <laughs> um, and you know in that time we just began forming the beginnings of earth suit it actually started as a a really uh bad dc talk cover band that we called that we called funk republic and we were just we were so into dc talk that we did like a few of their songs i want to say and we started doing shows all around new orleans and Uh, You know, we had a smoke machine and we got some lights from Guitar Center and like, you know, we started having a couple hundred kids come to our shows and mosh pits and we got, you know, shows shut down because of our mosh pits. So we thought we were really badass. And um, so it turned uh, it went from there to us getting show opportunities in other cities you know we had a show opportunity in Texas and Memphis maybe one in Alabama one in Florida kind of all around in the southeast area and then again speeding up a little bit we got a very random opportunity to play this big Christian music festival called Cornerstone yeah which was really that before
0: before we go there I want to pause for a second and, and point out the fact that you had said, um, learning piano, you know enough to kind of get yourself started musically with what project you're working on, but that you're you were all you're always seeking out someone who's more proficient at it, um, to to rely on. And so I think it's 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 very telling that Paul, who's fantastic at mu- at the keys as well as singing, um, you know, you two find each other and start forming the basis for Upcomes Earth Suit. Now, before you even get that opportunity at Cornerstone, which is just is a buzzword for so many folks right now I know um huge Christian music festivals you were talking about when did you make the switch from funk republic to calling yourself earth suit was it at cornerstone
1: no so Paul yeah. and I Paul and I went on the we got this very random random opportunity to tour with a husband and wife southern gospel legend Couple named Donnie and Reba Rambo McGuire.
0: <laughs> oh my God! Yes.
1: So Reba Reba Rambo McGuire's mother is is Dottie Rambo, and she is legendary in the like Southern Gospel scene. She's written, right. she's Grammy award winning, written you know songs that have been covered by Whitney Houston and Dolly Parton, and like you know tons and tons of like Christian music artists. We randomly got this opportunity to tour with them. And while we were touring with them, you know, I was singing backup for them and Paul was playing bass actually for them. While we were doing that, we continued to kind of work on songs for a project and we didn't know what we were going to call it. You know, we'd kind of broken away from this band idea that we were doing. Um, And the term earth suit was from this sermon, this random sermon that Donnie was preaching, you know, talking about how we're all spirit beings in an earth suit. And for some reason that idea just stuck out to me. And it was a suggestion that I threw out, you know, for a name for our project that we were, you know, putting together. So that was in like 1997, 98, maybe. Um, And so Once we got off the road with them, we started getting bigger and bigger opportunities. We were getting, like, approached by, you know, there was this guy um, that ran these massive, like, teen conventions uh, called Acquire the Fire. And uh, there were these massive, like, you know, Coliseum-sized, you know, conventions of, you know, pyro and, you know, worship (laughs) and um we got yeah they were they were kind of courting us to do that and we actually made the decision to not go that route and really just focus on this project that we were now calling earth suit and um we got a band back together and we um like i said got this random opportunity to play a labels stage at cornerstone which is up in kind of the chicago area Um, And for anybody that, you know, follows the Christian music scene or did at one point, that was the main like legit music festival that all the cool punk bands or indie bands, you know, would play was Cornerstone. And um, so we played that for actually ended up playing that for a couple of years. But for this first year that we played it, um, we were being um, invited to play on a stage that was run by a label for one of the guys in the band POD.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh my God. POD was at that exact moment.
1: They were blowing up on like MTV. They were, you know, they were having like their kind of crossover mainstream, mainstream moment, if you will.
0: Yes. Or whatever it is. Youth
1: Youth of a nation. I think it was. Yeah. Nation. Oh my God. So it's been a minute. They (laughs) wanted to sign us, the guy that was uh, running this label wanted to sign us and was like, Hey, we're going to promote that. We're going to come out on stage during your song one time. And, um, so they put that out there. And because of that, we had a packed tent. And so, you know, we had like thousands of people watching us play this little band from like, you know, new Orleans that had never done anything on this level before had POD on stage all of a sudden. And a packed tent, and there was an A and R guy there from Sparrow Records, um, who, you know, after we went home, uh, found a way to reach out to us, um, and basically somehow tracked us down, and started a (laughs) without
0: the use of internet or anything else.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't. I still don't exactly remember how that happened, but. Um, he tracked us down and we started a conversation with him and it moved pretty quickly. Um, and just speeding the story up, we ended up signing with Sparrow records, which was like a subsidiary of EMI and, you know, had like major distribution all over the world. So that was a huge deal, you know, for us. And they ended up, um, you know, spending a lot of money and putting a lot of energy, you know, behind us, even though we were completely scary and different uh, from anything that they had on their label at that point. You know, I think the other artists were like Stephen Curtis Chapman and, you know, Twyla Paris and these other like very CCM artists. And, you know, we were, you know, I was, I didn't even know what I was doing at the point, but I was wearing eyeliner and fur coats and things like that, you know, on stage. And, um, and so that kind of stuff was very risky for them and very scary, but they loved what we were doing musically so much that they took a chance on us. And, um, so yeah, through them, we had the opportunity to, you know, we ended up, You know, playing all over the world, you know, for for a couple of years and and headlining festivals all over the world and uh, playing really big shows. And um, it's so funny because, you know, maybe four or five years before when we were Funk Republic and, you know, slobbering all over DC Talk. um, Now we, you know, on our first release, we've got quotes from the guys in DC Talk on the front of the packaging you know, saying what they like about our release, you know, and we become Mm -hmm. friends with those guys. And it's like, what this is, you know, this was the craziest experience, you know, for us, um, as these little kids growing up in that scene.
0: Yeah. I, not to interrupt, but I do want to talk about from, it's so interesting hearing that from your perspective, because I'm thinking about, um, so when y'all's album dropped, I was in seventh grade, not to make you feel old, but, um, (laughs) Um, I'm just being a little bit of an asshole, I suppose. Um, but the the record was so incredible for me. I remember I got like one of those like Wow compilations or one of whatever that the Christian music scene put out, and it had the one that I got actually had Osmosis Land. I didn't hear one time until later, so Osmosis Land is actually technically my favorite Earthsuit song. Um, it has that trippy like was it sitar at the beginning? Oh my god. It still gives me chills every time I listen to it, and but but the the sound it was like you said so unique and different than what the the scene quote unquote was doing for the most part, and it it unlocked this uh, this musical journey for me that continued on from Earthsuit. Um, I dabbled in Pod for a little bit, went down a Senses Fail and a Rise Against path, and then kind of came back up um, in the alt perspective with say anything and um, got to propose to my wife on stage to say anything concert it's always a dear memory for me but so that's like if it wasn't if I hadn't I think about it this way if I hadn't heard osmosis land by earth suit I don't know what musical stylings I would have had because I just it 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 hit me in the spot where I went this is new and different and speak you know I'm in the midst of those teenage feelings. I'm like, this speaks to me, but it really did. And so it it was tapping into something.
1: Yeah, you know, people um, will from time to time ask me, you know, about my, my time there. And if I, you know, knowing me now, if I'm embarrassed or if I regret anything and I I really honestly don't I don't because I I hear stories like what you're talking about that um you know we were able to just make someone like music you know um and feel like they had found something that was different or you know exciting to them so that was like you know the same story for us you know and and when we were coming up you know, and finding those things. So um, it's kind of when you're a musician, it's about kind of passing that along, you know, passing that, uh, passing that on to somebody else. And, you know, that makes sleeping in the van on your birthday or, you know, staying in an actual roach motel on your birthday. It's like, that makes that kind of stuff like worth it, you know, because you end up getting to talk to somebody I'm talking to you right now, like almost 18, 19 years later, you know, and it's like to hear that that was your experience. It, 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 I love that, you know, it makes me, makes me happy.
0: It, I mean, well, and it's, you know, I, I, I jest as well, but to your point, I mean, it's like it started, it did, it started by hearing osmosis land and then we fast forward to the fact that through that journey, I got introduced to say anything. Fell in love with I want to know your plans. Reached out to the band. They were gracious enough to give me the space to propose at the Palladium Ballroom, November tenth, 2000, November two 2007, on stage. I got to Max was super generous. Brought us on stage. We got to watch the show. Um, from the side I proposed, there's some random person took a YouTube video of it that I was able to grab pictures, got that memory. And so I, and this is not about me, this is about you, but I, I am saying that it's so fascinating to me how by listening, like picking up a CD or a record or a cassette tape, right? In your case, and hearing something that makes you feel something you hadn't felt before takes you on this interesting winding path that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't picked that up, you know?
1: Absolutely, um, and I just have to—I have to point this out. Um, and I don't want to go on too far of a rabbit trail, but my husband is the biggest "Say Anything" fan. He has—he no has the words "To Live with Woe" tattooed on his <gasps> rib cage, and um, we, through you know, my my relationship with uh, Darren King, who was in Mute Math. He's married to one of the Isley girls, and yes. you know Sherry is one of the Isley girls. Anyway, long story short, we had the opportunity to to meet um, Max, and we oh. we went to um, one of their shows, and actually we got to go to a couple of shows and hang with them on the bus and see the show, and just the sweetest gem of a person, like such a sweet, sweet person such a great guy and like from the moment we met we were you know like playing with their they you know their kids were like babies at the time and um right. i think they just had lucy who was a baby at the time and i've always loved babies so we were you know playing with their baby and <laughs> and max you know from the very beginning was like what are you doing you guys have to have kids you got to have babies he is yeah. just such a just such a uh great guy, just such a pure, uh, pure energy soul, Um, you know, he and he and their whole family.
0: I love that, that it's, it's uh, one of these days, I will have, I will have Max on the show. That is that is a that is a goal. It is something I have put out in the universe. So um, I'm saying it now. So I can come back and reflect on it when it's happened and, and see how much time has passed. But no, it's just, it's just so I just feel like this music connects us in the same way that you're talking. Like you and I had zero idea that we had this say anything connection, but both have impacted our lives. And then I think about the fact that it's all tied back into like, like your experiences in Earth Suit took you down the path where you are today um, to get that opportunity. My interactions with your music took me down the path with where I am today. And and it's just like, th- like the world is such an interesting place in how I feel that, and this is where, and I know we're going to get into this as well coming up, but we'll just start digging into it now is that from a, you know, both growing up in a very religious background and no longer identifying in that way today, but I still feel this spiritual kinship with other folks in this world. And it takes it the form in a variety of different ways, whether that's music, whether that is just a feeling that I have at any given time or, or what have you, it's um, I, I I truly feel that music is embedded in our marrow of who we are. And then when we find a way to connect with another individual, more often than not to me, it's not only just through an artistic way, but it's through a musical way and it can bond you on this, but like DNA level that you didn't previously have. And that's what I find is so beautiful. And that's, that's where I find the spirituality in life is through those types of moments. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I, I, um, I think when I came out of the um, Christianity structure, God structure, I think um, this is the easiest way for me to put it. I think I started, um, you know, another journey. That's not really a journey, but maybe just a belief that, um, you know, energy is a real thing. It's a real thing that, um, you know, you can't see, but it power. It literally powers things that we use every day, um, right. and it is a real force. It's a real thing that exists in the universe. And um, there's, you know, good, positive energy and there's negative energy. And um, I'm a big believer in that concept. And um, I, I do think that um, music is full of energy um, and yes. that people are um, able to connect in, like you said, a spiritual way with each other. Uh, because of that energy, and that's why you know uh, people people within the church um, can experience something very similar to people outside of the church when they go to a show because everyone is tapping into this same energy whether you know it, it uh from an outsider's perspective you know a christian uh, might like to to try and wrap it up as oh it's i you know it's idol worship you're all just worshiping this person but that's really not it you know they've it's just that everyone has found this connection with something in the art something that is woven into the music into the into the concept into the dna of what this artist presents um and they're all kind of tapping in at the same time and you can just as easily see someone crying and possibly passing out at a say anything show as you can when someone in the church goes to a Hillsong show you know and it's for the same reason it's a it's an energy thing um and so anyway that's a, I that's a, that. a little bit of a, uh, um, a, a sidestep there, but, um, I'm just no, a big, big that. believer in to, that.
0: To put a point on this segment before we start digging into, um, post earth suit and where you are now, I want you to kind of let us know, cause you only had the one official album with earth suit. So talk us through what the departure from Sparrow and the departure from earth suit was like for you, um, in as concise a way as you can put it, because I know there's a lot there too. Sure.
1: So, <laughs> um,
0: just you know, uh, just in case any like
1: diehard you know Earthsuit fans are out there listening, um, you know, there were actually two unofficial, uh, non-major ah. label releases that we did too. One we just called the Headless Clown EP, and then there was Kaleidoscope Superior. That was our label release, and then we started working on a new record um, call that we called noise for your eyes. And we were still on Sparrow at this point when we were working on this record. But during that time we started and the creative pull away from what we had done with kaleidoscope superior started probably even while we were recording that record but it really manifested itself in full force when we were doing Noise for Your Eyes, this this kind of follow-up record. Um, and so we, we started just messing around with a lot of different um, stuff, and we realized at that point that we had created multiple bands um, mm. and that this wasn't just EarthSuit anymore. And so when we turned the record in, We turned it in to the label knowing that they were not going to be into it, that they were not going to want to release it, but we turned it in anyway because we were still under contract with them. Um, But we kind of approached them with this idea of, you know, we think this might be best if there's any scenario where we can mutually agree that... um, this is not the best fit for us Um, because, you know, without going into specifics, there were lots of situations where we were put in scenarios um, that were just very weird for a band like us to be in. Um, And uh, we paid the price for that when we were in those scenarios and they knew it too. They knew that they were really, this label knew that they were stretching by having us on their roster. So when we turned in this second record, they kind of took our ask and they ran with it. And they said, okay. And we worked out a deal to where we would be able to release this music and kind of part ways with them. We would release it independently. So that's what we did. We released it independently, but we did it with the idea that... um not that this would be the last earth suit record necessarily but that there were different concepts kind of coming together at the same time one of those was this concept um that became uh one called macro sick which was um this this idea that i was pursuing and i was you know doing a lot of the songwriting um for uh, myself but still utilizing the guys within Earthsuit to, you know, play and record the music. And then there were songs that were for sure kind of earth suit specific. And then there was another, another set of material that didn't fit within that. And those songs ended up becoming a band called math, which then turned into mute math. Really? Um, so we were all intertwined at one point in the beginning, you know, this band MacroSick was Paul and Darren and myself, and the guitarist from Earthsuit, Dave Rumsey, and the drummer from Earthsuit. I mean, it was kind of like Earthsuit just fronting as a different band um, yeah. with a very different identity. Um, and we have a we had a really exciting story. It was a short story, but um, you know, we ended up getting some music heard by this guy in LA that. Uh, presented it to some labels and we ended up getting to do showcases for sony records and columbia and a bunch of labels in new york and la and um, had started the process of um, kind of being courted by this guy named matt Penfield who is like a music legend Um, he was david bowie's a and r guy and um, just like music legend some of the stories he was telling us on the dinner that he took us out to after he saw us play were about him and like marilyn manson at the playboy mansion and like just oh, wow. cr- just crazy stories um and um so we got very close with macro sick to signing a major label deal and then the internet happened and um People, this was you know to put a little timestamp on this. This was around probably 2002, I'd say 2003, maybe. Okay. Um, so the internet had already happened, but it was just really at that point starting to wreak havoc on the major label um, part of the music industry, and people were losing their jobs like left and right, and being reassigned to other departments and. So anyway, that was basically happening to us um, at that point. And we got put on a shelf and nothing ever happened. And then we we kept playing shows as Macro Sick for a couple of years. And then Paul was uh, pursuing this other idea that he was calling math. And, you know, I was kind of helping to write some stuff for that. Um, so we were all still intertwined at that point. And then Hurricane Katrina happened. We were all living in New Orleans when that happened. That displaced everybody all over the place right. the guys that were uh, playing in sick at that point kind of moved to the cities that they were from i moved back to memphis um paul's from new orleans he just ended up staying there but um that really kind of just closed a certain door a certain chapter and um you know with hurricane katrina there was a prob- probably about a four-month period where no one was allowed back in New Orleans, you know, um, with all the cleanup and the recovery that was going on. So, I had to kind of start my life over in Memphis. And the bass player of Macrosick came to Memphis with me, and we started kicking new ideas around that you know, what sounded completely different from macro six. So we were like, okay, this is a new concept. And, uh, so we, uh, named it club of the sons and, uh, just started piecing ideas together for this new concept called club of the sons. And at the same time, Paul was really fast forwarding with this idea of math that ended up becoming mute math. So, at that point we had two different concepts and we just knew at that point that we were not going to pursue earth suit anymore. We had, uh, these two ideas that, um, we felt more deeply connected to and that were more like us each personally. And, uh, but we still kind of committed to work with each other. So, you know, throughout the course of the whole mute math story, um, you know, I was a writer on, you know, some of the songs I named a couple of their records, you know, Paul did mixing and production on a couple of the, um, projects that I did with club of the sons or Charlie Blacksmoke. I mean, we were, we were always still kind of intertwined as this like kind of creative family or cell. Mm-hmm. Um, so he and I are like, still, you know, we have this friend bond um that's one of those friendships that um we don't have to talk to each other for probably six months and then we can pick up the phone or or talk you know and it's like you know we just pick up where we left off kind of thing and we have this very you know deep you know connection that will never go away um and um so yeah paul's one of my best friends of all time he and i just kind of went through a certain period of life together that, um, was just really crucial and, you know, uh, it's very foundation, you know, period of life together. So, um, he and I are always going to have, you know, that great relationship and able to work together creatively on different things. But that is kind of that chapter, you know, Club of the right. Suns. We, we ended up, you know, Mute Math uh, during this period, got signed to Warner Brothers and started blowing up and, you know, getting the opportunity to... Do big big things with you know everything from the Twilight soundtrack to recording a theme song for the Transformers movie and playing on every late night show and touring the world and you know doing these these really big things and I was um, over on another side which was very indie very 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 indie in the most divey. You know, way that you can imagine um, playing in uh, in smaller bars and doing stuff on a much more DIY art, you know, art rock kind of uh, budget. Um, but having you know having a lot of fun with that and building Club of the Suns and uh, had the opportunity to tour with Mute Math a couple of times and you know do shows with them and that was uh, that was a really amazing opportunity and um you know let's just speed up i guess now to where we're at now you know mute math um is kind of a closed closed chapter and um we'll see with club of the suns you know i've i've been working on on music um for club of the suns for about the past four or five years with my main collaborator um jonathan allen who's the bass player and uh that process has has been slow, but we we definitely have some material that I want to release um, and would love to be able to release it this year if at all possible. But um, again, this is this topic that I'll mention I'll just make light mention of is, is probably so dense that it could be its own episode. But I'm someone that deals with a lot of anxiety um, and a lot of that is creative anxiety and I'll sure. go through I'll go through periods of time where I feel I feel like fuck yeah I'm Adam McClough. I can you know I can do this I can I can put the song together I can sing I can you know I can I need to make my my voice heard and then the very next day I could I could have a a moment where I feel like there's no reason for me to do anything with music um, the, what is it going to mean in the world no one's listening no one cares Um, and I don't even like the sound of my voice. So I go through these huge swings, um, that I can only tie to just some anxiety that I I deal with. And I've, I've been taking steps over the past probably year or so to like try and get that under control and, you know, you know, use some tools to try and get that under control and, and realize that it's, it's mostly really irrational, Um, you know, and, um, but I have to be honest, it, it helps me, um, want to keep going when someone reaches out with something like this or, um, you know, uh, people leave comments and questions and that, and that happens frequently. And that encourages me. That's like fuel for me. And, um, it's not necessarily why I, I, I do it, but it helps me feel like maybe there's a, a purpose, you know, to, to do it, you know,
0: absolutely. You know, I can identify a hundred percent when I do these types of projects. Um, there is a, a high level of, of creative anxiety with regards to, I mean, you see just even like you touched on a lot with music, but even from like the podcast perspective, there's so many, and there's so many that are successful and there's so many that are celebrities and that's why they're successful. Um, And you just get, you know, I'm over here doing this passion project. um, And I go, does it even matter? Does it count? And then I have this connection with an artist such as yourself. And I go, fuck it, I don't care if anybody's listening. This was like therapy for me. So I'm stoked and this is fantastic. And then I also think about the fact that like what legacy am I leaving for my kids? And I want my kid. like I've got a digital file, uh, Google drive of all of the episodes I've ever recorded, both this one and my other podcast. And I want my kids to, you know, not to be morbid, but I have no idea when I'm going. And so I want them to be able to dig through my version of my catalog and listen to this kind of um, audio journal of myself, like w- talking to other people, working through whatever shit I'm working through at the time. And they can, get some value out of that. So I totally relate with that. And I love the direction we're headed, um, up into this last segment. Um, but you're listening to after the encore, I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this. To after the encore I'm your host Joe Sean i am back with Adam Laclave and in this segment you did a great job in the last segment of taking this through your um, your past professional musical journey um, and what a lot of people may be most familiar uh, most familiar with you from and so I kind of want to use this opportunity in, in this last segment to peel back the layers on Adam as an individual and really dig into, um, you know, we talked a lot about music uh, embedded in our DNA and our marrow. I'd love to dig into that from you. So I want to start out with, um, and this is going to be, you know, uh, possibly heavy and for some folks, but I think it's it's of immense value and I'm excited to talk about it. But I want to start out by asking you, was there a particular, no, here we go when was the moment in which you were able to recognize in yourself that you were gay?
1: Um, I would say for me, okay, so there's the moment I'll say it like this. There's the moment that I realized that I was different than the other boys and that there was something else going on there. Um, And then there was the moment that I was willing to accept calling myself gay. Those are two moments that are separated by a lot of time for me. So the moment that I realized that um, I had an attraction to guys was probably pretty early on, like 11, 12 years old. You know, the point at which, you know, um, you start. Feeling feelings for something. Um, For me, um, you know, I noticed that I had an attraction to my friends, to the other boys, to the other guys. Um, But it was more complicated than that for me because I also feel like, if I'm being honest, and I remember back to that time, that I also kind of felt that way, you know, towards. towards some of the girls too Um, so just very complicated you know for me and I didn't even know at that point of my life and my very Christian upbringing what the concept of gay was like I had never probably even heard that word you know Um, so it's so different now you know for kids that are growing up than when I was uh, you know when I was coming up And, you know, you lump in decades for me of, um, heavy syrupy repressed, you Mm -hmm. know, um, you know, belief system that is kind of brought my way a couple times a week, um, you know, in, in a church environment, um, you know, and it's, it's not just in relation to, um, Sexual orientation, but in a lot of ways, just things that are somewhat natural to feel as a human and be as a human. You know, a lot of that in the Christian environment gets repressed, and so you know, this is a very, again, very different topic. But um, you know, there's there's a mechanism there that um, is a control mechanism you know, to keep everyone within the flock or within the church, um, on the same page, you know? And, um, so I was like growing up, I was the poster child for, um, being a good Christian boy. You know, I, all I ever wanted to do was, was be good, get into heaven and, um, do things that I was being told that I should do. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with some of that, but, you know, I didn't realize at the time that I was completely repressing, you know, this part of me that was very, actually just very natural, you know, which was my real sexual orientation or attraction. Um, you know, so, It took me a long time, a long time to really feel comfortable to even call myself gay. I went through a period of time where just secretly only to myself would I even refer to myself as maybe bi or curious, you know? Um, And that was with me still in only female relationships, you know, relationships with females, but still but at that point, accepting the idea just to myself that, okay, you know, I'm an adult now. I don't live at home. I can at least just to myself accept the idea that I'm attracted to men as well. I wasn't acting on it at that point, but I, w- I was just taking these very, very slow steps. Um, so it took me a long time. I, I didn't come out. Uh, I came out to my friends, you know, when I was like, I want to say like 34, 33, 34, something like that. And that I didn't, I didn't come out to my family. My family, my core family was the last group that I really came out to um, just because of my upbringing and all the fear, you know, associated with what their response would be. I didn't come out to them until I was like in my mid to late thirties. It was years later. Um,
0: and not to date you, but how, how old are you now? Just yeah, for context? No,
1: no worries. I'm 44.
0: So, okay. So it, there you go. So uh, about 10 years ago you started yeah, officially.
1: Yeah. Wow. It, it was quite a while. It was quite a, a long trek for me. And I, I look at what's happening in the world now. Um, and I see, you know, kids at that age, you know, of 11 and 12, where I mean, it's just natural. You're getting hormones. This is not something manufactured. This is just, it happens at that age. Yeah. And at that age you start having, you know, attraction or feeling maybe not necessarily towards just one sex or gender. It, 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 like we talked about in your, your break a few moments ago, it's, I, I am a believer that it is kind of a spectrum. Um, right. You know, people fall on that spectrum in lots of different places and, and, And that can, that's place in the spectrum can even change over time. You know, it's, it's not black and white. Um, and for me, it took me a long time, just really out of fear. And I, like I was trying to say, I, I, I look at kids of today and all of the support system that they have and the representation that they have now to make their, um, make their lives less, less hellish, you know, make, yes. make their nights less, um, less full of like anguish and tears and, you know, feeling like they may even want to kill themselves. It's like, i i felt all those things for so long. Um, because I just felt like if anybody really knew this about me or found out, you know, this about me that, I would have no friends. Everyone would, you know, disown me. Everyone in my family would disown, you know, it would just, the scenarios in my head were just, you know, they were incredible. Um,
0: yeah. I completely understand with that. And then, I mean, you're having the, also growing up in the church that you're talking about, you're hearing this rhetoric week over week about, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for an individual to act and love and be in a relationship with and start a family with and so there's a lot of trauma that goes along with it when you're hearing this negative rhetoric day in and day out or week in and week out and it, it gets to a point that i i would think that one would have these feelings that are what we define as attraction to someone else and go well i can't be gay, or I can't be bi, or I can't be anything other than uh, heterosexual in a relationship. So I don't know what to do with these feelings. And I don't know how to make sense of them. And it's like, well, the way to make sense of them is to understand that they're attractions to someone of the same gender or someone who's non-binary. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And And to your point, we're starting to finally have these resources and support groups and representation for kids now. So that way kids are able to have the language to understand what they're feeling and ways in which they can be fully and authentically themselves from a much earlier age, you know? Yes.
1: Yeah. I, um, Zach, my husband and I went to, um, Nashville pride. We live in Nashville and we went to Nashville pride. Um, in 2019, it was basically canceled this year because of, coronavirus but um we went in 2019 and we were sitting at one of the stages um where they were just you know there was music going on and at one point like um I just started like crying my eyes I like couldn't even control myself I felt like an idiot because I'm out in public just crying because I was I realized like that I was surrounded by like 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 year olds, not even like older teenagers that are about to leave home. I'm talking about kids that are in that like, um, early, you know, hormonal part of life where they're trying to figure out who they are. And I'm surrounded by kids that are confident. They're confident in those feelings that they're feeling and those attractions And, um, just watching their confidence and their comfortability in being who they are made me like an emotional wreck. I was just like, I, because it was just such a different experience from what I grew up in. Um, and it was just a, it was a, a a beautiful, beautiful thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I had the, um, it's something I'm constantly reminded of so last year being able to walk in in dallas pride and uh uh, yeah it canceled this year um but being there and getting to um work represent my company and getting to walk with my kids who at the time were four and two and now they're five and three but and they're on the float and they're waving and they're super happy and they're super excited and they're be like we're teaching them And from an early age that families look a variety of different ways and it's beautiful and that you can love, marry, get in a relationship with whoever you want or nobody if you choose to. Like that's totally fine too. And it's all beautiful. And it's in these ways when my five-year-old is asking me questions like why, you know, why do people think differently that think that this isn't beautiful and amazing and incredible? And having to remind her that some people in the world think differently and her not be her inability to comprehend the hate is something that really makes me happy that she can't comprehend it. Um, And also sad because it's another reminder of how this type of inequality and resistance is taught, not innate, you know, we're not, we don't wake up Haiti members of different marginalized communities. We are told that they're less than for X number of reasons and therefore build up this false narrative that we then pass on. And that's where the danger lies.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very true and amazing that you're, um, you know, doing that with your kids. And I think, you know, we're just, we're, we're in for so much of a, a a better world because of it. and I think there are so many people that are of the same mindset now um, you know that were just not out and vocal and practicing you know that idea when I was growing up, you know and um, that being said, we still live in a really scary world and a very especially scary country um, you know right now. Um, but you know, all the more reason to um uh, be confident in this belief of um you know what we are born with and what we grow into being natural and not dirty and not something to repress, um, right. you know, and, and teaching children that and I think we'd just end up being a much healthier um, society, you know, if, um, we could all drift
0: towards that, uh, that belief. And well said, I mean, just Bravo, because that is, that is it. I mean, that is the perfect capsule on it. I would say, um, there's a few more talking points I want to, I want to get into before we wrap this up, but for, if somebody is listening right now and they're struggling to come out, what is some advice you would like to give them?
1: Who God, no one's ever asked me that, and that's that's a a very good question for me to think about. Um, I would just say um, that you you definitely feel like you are alone, and you feel like. You are maybe in a family, or you feel like maybe the the city that you live in or the state that you live in is surrounded by people that you know will hate you and want to uh, make fun of you or want to pull you down. But um, I would encourage that person to find a way to love themselves enough to just tell one other person that they feel like they can trust and just start there. Just start with that. That's kind of what happened with me. You know, I told my friend that I I talked to you about earlier, my bass player, main collaborator with club of the Suns. I told him at a moment that I just felt like I could not carry the weight anymore of it, of keeping it secret. And when I told him That like old cliche about like, you know, weight on your shoulders coming off is that is a real, that is a real experience Um, for anyone that's not experienced that before. When you carry something around for your entire life for decades and then you basically, you just pull the bandaid off and you let somebody else in and you realize that. It's not what you thought it was going to be in your head, your worst nightmare. Um, that that makes you feel so light and so free that then you'll get to the point where you'll find somebody else that you can trust and tell them. Or maybe that person that you told will introduce you to some other people that um, would be good for you to be able to be yourself around, but that's how it starts. I mean, but you just need to be able to find that one person. And if they don't live in your family and they don't live in your town, um, find them online. You know, um, that is, you know, I'm not going to say, unfortunately, that is fortunately the world that we live in right now. You know, we, we start relationships sometimes online and start it there, you know, um, but the key really is is finding somebody that you feel like you're willing to take that chance with to just let in and tell them the way you feel and who you really are. And you will 100% of the time realize that you wish you had done that sooner and that you wish you had told more people um, and been able to spend more time just feeling more free, more light, and more like yourself.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Um, as we're starting to wrap up, I do want to touch on, um, you know, you've got a uh, fantastic relationship with your husband. So what was it like for you uh, getting to meet him? And I know you all have been together for a while now. Married for what was it, four years? Yeah, we just, just celebrated
1: our, our fourth wedding anniversary. We've been together for nine.
0: Nine. Okay, so so there we go. All right. That's where I was getting the 13 total, 13 total years. Uh, No, I'm adding. And yeah, it feels like it feels like 30 at the end of the day. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, let's let's touch on your or let's walk through what was it like meeting him, connecting with him and the life that you all have built together over these last nine years.
1: So when he and I met, we were both in the closet. Um, so we did not meet in a setting where we could just be like, Hey, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's start like a regular relationship. We were both in the closet and, uh, we met online, you know, just being honest, we met on kind of a dating app and we, um, we realized that, um, we shared in common the fact that we grew up in families that, um, we felt like would absolutely shame us disown us you know um the whole the whole deal so we had that in common and we we kind of from the very beginning just connected hit it off he's an artist uh like a physical um artist like illustrator v- visual graphic artist yeah and and you know me with music and um so we really connected early on and um started just spending like every day together um and um and that feeling of wanting to spend every day together just never went away and so we eventually decided that we would move in together and um we did that and all the while we're like in the closet our families have no idea um, our friends even in the beginning had no idea, but for us, we just knew that, um, we needed to pursue this and we just loved being around each other and laughing and joking and watching, you know, certain shows together that we just, we didn't want to have any day where we weren't doing that together. So we kind of just built our relationship on that. And that has just never changed. Um, I know that sounds really simplistic, but um, no, I love I, it. I just I feel like you know, not that everyone has to be in a relationship because I don't believe that that's true, but um, but I feel like everyone needs somebody, you know, that they can like partner with and spend, you know, high moments, low moments with, um, you know arbitrary moments with whatever you know you you need somebody and so he just became that and I became that for him and um, long story short we started you know after being together for a few years and eventually coming out to both of our families we started talking about the idea of maybe one day getting married and we were living in Memphis at the time and it wasn't legal to to get married, uh, same-sex marriage in Tennessee. So uh, with the job that I was working, I pursued an opportunity in California and we moved out to California and actually lived there for about five years. We got married there, um, engaged and married there. And um, then speeding the story up, um, just started thinking, well, now what's next? You know, we want to eventually at some point maybe start a family. We want to buy a house and we realized there's no way we're doing this in California. It's too <laughs> effing expensive. Um, right. and so we looked through, you know, looked for another opportunity and one that brought us back to Tennessee and we decided this time to go to Nashville. have got a great, you know, group of friends that live here, um, from my musical past life. And, um, so, yeah, we moved to Nashville. We've been here for a little over two years now and, um, yeah, been just celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary, which, you know, some, your straight followers won't, uh, won't be familiar with this, but in gay years, that's like 70 years, you know, together. <laughs> so we're doing good. We're doing really well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. I absolutely love that. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah. And as we're, as we're, you know, you did teases up that you've been working on, uh, some club of the suns, uh, new material have been for the last several years. Um, that's really exciting. I think I want to end this episode of the podcast by, by posing this last kind of question. Well, actually before I even get there, I'll say this. Um, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah. So right now, um, as far as social media platforms go, I only use Instagram. That's it for me. Um, I realize there are many out there and I'm really, really horrible at promoting and all of that. I, you know, with the next Club of the Suns release, I'm going (laughs) to for sure need some, uh, some help on that side um, from those that do that. But right now I really just use Instagram. So anything that I'm involved in right now um, is just all showing up at Adam, my last name first and then first name. At Laclav Adam, and uh, I don't know if we even mention it at all, but yeah, I've, I've you know I've done a little podcast uh, called yes, Mystic yes. Picnic. Um, you know, so you can link to that from At Laklav Adam. Um, and there's a at Club of the Suns on Instagram as well, but we have not really. We've posted one picture and nothing else. Um, and that will change. I promise, you know, people ask me about that a lot, but, um, I promise everyone, I will get my shit together and I will find the way to finish this batch of songs. And when I do, I promise everyone will be happy. Um, it's a great, uh, group of material and, um, I want to do more. I want to be more active. And like I said, just doing stuff like this. Helps helps me. It gives me a little fuel and drive. So so thank you, Joe Shaw. Thank you.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Um and I do have to dip in and talk about Mystic Picnic for like five seconds because I have ranted and raved about it privately, both to you and to anybody that will listen to me. Um because the one thing I, I think when I think about podcasts as an art form, which I haven't I hadn't thought of podcasts as an art form until uh, about a year ago, and somebody posited it to me as complimenting what I do as art, and having gotten a theater, a theater and a theology degree uh, in undergrad, or not two degrees, I double majored. Let, let me clarify: I don't have a master's, um, but getting both of those at the school that I went to, um, you know, getting to do something artistic is uh, to quote you on Mystic Picnic. I feel that I am at my peak of creativity right now because I feel like what I'm producing is authentically me and I'm really tapping into that and so I love it so I say all that to say when I think about podcasts you've got weekly you've got seasons kind of like this one you've got a variety of different ways you can go but something that I've enjoyed about yours you've got eight episodes out there for anybody that that wants to go listen to it um for me each episode while a conversation is like uh I don't know how to say it other than like, it's an audio. I feel like I'm at a wine tasting, but, but for my ears because (laughs) I'm listening to bits of it and I'm like, I'll listen to a section and then I'll put it on pause and I'll go do something else. And then I'll, it's swirling around in my brain and then I'll come back to it and then pick it up. And I'm in a different spot, pairing it with the outdoors or pairing it with a road trip or pairing it with my work or, or vision boarding as I do um, for this podcast. And so when I'm done, I, you know it can take me multiple days to get through one, not because of the length, but because I'm intentionally choosing to take a take a sip and swirl it and take a sip and swirl it. So I'm hyping it up because I, I think it's of immense creative value, um, the types of conversations that you're having, Zach's having, and, and your other guests are having on there. So yes, everybody go check it out for sure.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's amazing. And something that we... Hope to do more of, you know, we, we moved into a house late last year and then coronavirus happened. So, uh, we've just, and not just coronavirus this year, let's be honest. Uh, lots yes. of, um, lots of stuff has, show. um, yeah, that's the best way to put it. Uh, just a real <laughs> shit show. So we've taken a little hiatus from that, but yeah, we will definitely have some, uh, future episodes of M- mystic picnic, but for those that haven't listened, yeah, just go, go, uh, start with the first date. Um, take a little time to get through their kind of long, long episodes, but, um, thank you. Well for, worth it.
0: for Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last question I want to hit you with is if somebody is listening and they want to, um, perhaps break into the music industry or do something that's artistically satisfying for them with regards to music, what is one piece of advice or a mantra that you have for yourself that you would like to impart on whoever's listening?
1: Okay, that's a great question. Um, And what I would say is going to sound like uh, foreign language, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, considering how people tend to find their way into the mainstream now. But what I would say, if you want to end up doing something that is original, fresh, and could potentially give you a long life in the music industry um, would be to start with those that have come way before you um, and dig in like a science experiment to what they did. And it's got to mean something to you. You can't just find something random. And um, if it, if you don't have any feels for it, if you're not uh, – If you're not excited about it, if it doesn't make you cry or tear up, Like move on to the the next thing. But if you find that thing that does that for you in older music um, that has more deep roots than what is out around you right now, dive into that like a science experiment and read up everything you can on that artist's life, who they were inspired by, then go on a mission to... Uh, follow the path on all of those artists you've got to do you got to do work you got to do your homework that is that is a big part of what paul and i um you know definitely spent time doing and you know pre-internet that was just a lot of like buying random cds of people that we found out about and heard were influences to people that we loved and You know, it was just buying a random CD and then listening to it and going, oh, you know, so you've got to do that. And you've got to you got to do your work um, online and really do some research. Um, And then my next uh, bit of advice on top of that is is to in the beginning, mimic, mimic those things that you like. Um, I'm not saying release a record to the public with your impression of that. But before you get there, you need to, you need to mimic, um, the things that you like and mash all those things up. And, um, based on whatever your experience is and what your life is and where your geography is, whatever it is, it's going to come out in its own way. But in the beginning, you really, you, you have to kind of pull from something, um, And uh, so don't be afraid of that, you know, don't be afraid to, to mimic in the beginning and uh, you will find your own stamp, your own voice. Um, And if you don't, then, you know, good luck. Um, You know, there, there'll probably be an audience for you, but it will maybe be very momentary, um, you know, because uh, there are plenty of people that are making music um, based on something that they just hear on the radio right now. Um, but that, you know, to me is not interesting. And I think to, to most people that love and feel music is not interesting. Um, so I think it is just all about, um, doing the homework, practice, practice, practice in your bedroom, in the shower, wherever you can like do I think I think my message here is just that there's work there's work involved it is not it is not just um, you know stepping up on stage for the first time and winning a record contract that doesn't that doesn't happen you got you gotta work um, That's true. so um, don't be afraid of that don't be afraid to mimic and pull from and then you will naturally make it your own thing over time um, and allow yourself some time to make that happen and when you get there, it will be special. It will be uh, something that only you can produce. And when you get that, then those that make decisions about music and wanting to promote music and finding new music that's special will find you. They will find you. And there's so many channels now to, to get yourself in front of those people um, that didn't exist when I was coming up. So use all of that. Um, but... Do your work first and then, you know, start putting it out there.
0: I love that. Adam, thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight.
1: Thank you, man. This is, uh, this is great. And, uh, look forward to, uh, to many more conversations in the future. we we'll, we could, uh, we could go down many roads as often. one. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, you're listening to after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And here to play us out one last time is Adam LaClave.
1: magic on me Let me run through your
0: forest, you
1: Baby, what we're about to do